This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, January 17th, 2019. I'm Caleb Brown. As the U.S. military and intelligence services gear up to fight conflicts using code, what are the pitfalls and why might restraint be the most prudent course? Brandon Valeriano is co-author of the new Cato paper, The Myth of the Cyber Offense, The Case for Restraint. We spoke this week. Stuxnet was a, uh, a clever bit of code. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was uh, produced uh, by Israel and probably the United States uh, to shut down facilities in Iran. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was discovered to be an operation and the code for Stuxnet got out mm-hmm. and it's been used since to do other things that were probably more nefarious uh, than uh, shutting down uh, nuclear facilities in Iran. That seems to be a pretty good jumping off point for making the case for using cyber as a something to repel attacks mm-hmm. on the United States and its critical interests. Explain what you mean uh, in your paper about you know what role code essentially can play in fighting adversaries and uh, you know what the stakes are. Sure. Well, there's a lot to unpack there, but really the main issue is about effectiveness. And the reality is that if the goal was to forestall an Israeli attack on Iran, then it's likely that the Stuxnet attack was effective in delaying Israeli active activities. But if you're looking at whether or not the Stuxnet attack actually degraded Iranian capabilities. There's a lot of debate about that, but generally people suggest they actually got better at enriching uranium because basically they went through all their processes, took the centrifuges that weren't working offline and brought more online. So they actually got better at producing uh, uranium and enriching uranium. And then on top of that, this was an attack done in the middle of the desert, in the middle of nowhere, in what we call an air gap system, a non-internet-based system. And the code got out because it just leaked out. That's just how these things happen. People plug things in, they go home to Tehran or wherever, and things spread throughout the world. So the challenge is is that any attack you do in the cyber domain or the cyber layer will not necessarily be restricted towards a target. It will get out there. It will bleed. And that's like saying you launch a cruise missile at someone and they can put it back together and launch it right back at you. So that makes this domain all the bit more scary. And that's kind of one of the main reasons why we call for restraint. And it's worse than that in a sense because uh, a cruise missile is uh, stuff you can touch. Mm -hmm. It can't be simply copied from one disk to another simply and deployed in widely different Mm -hmm. ways. A cruise missile has one point that it's going to hit, mm-hmm. whereas code can hit many, many points. Yeah, it's the proliferation that's the danger. And really, we've seen this recently with the WannaCry attack in Ukraine, where Russia was attacking Ukrainian tax systems, which eventually even hit the British NHS. So that's how diverse the attack patterns can be. And that's challenging. I don't think as a community in national security affairs, we've dealt with that reality just yet. So – how uh, should the United States proceed mm-hmm. to um, engage in merely defensive uh, uses of mm-hmm. these tools? Well, we're also not ruling out offensive operations, but we think they should be done in reaction and retaliation towards significant cyber events, which in reality are very rare. 
because people have talked for a long time about this idea of a cyber Pearl Harbor. But really what we're seeing in this domain is really espionage. It's really covert action. And when you look at it from that perspective, we don't respond to covert action and espionage with dramatic military escalation. But that's what doctrine's calling for right now. And that's really the point of um, where we're jumping off from our work, from the more esoteric academic perspective towards the policy perspective, because we're worried about the consequences of operating militarily in an espionage-based domain. So what do we see from this administration and the last administration with respect to the uses of uh, this cyber Mm -hmm. warfare technology uh, that is most concerning? Well, the Trump administration's doctrine is evolving. We're not exactly sure what it entails. And um, some people luckily have Snowden to look back on for the Obama administration because Snowden released Obama's uh, presidential directive 20, which spelled out exactly how cyber operations were conducted back then. And it's about authority, getting approval, making sure multi-agencies have a say on what is going on. Because you're going to want to consult the CIA. You're going to want to consult the State Department. You're going to want to consult the lawyers in every operation, given how impactful and how diverse the targets can be with cyber operations. With the Trump administration, the policy is a bit more, you know, let's take the gloves off. And they're doing this from the perspective of deterrence. They believe that deterrence is a useful and active way of conducting military policy. But we're not so sure about that. So deterrence seems like a less uh, credible threat when you're talking about something that, frankly, isn't all that expensive. Yeah. Right? Because code isn't expensive. Maybe injecting that code into particular systems might be difficult, but that's not necessarily expensive either. Yeah, it's the entry into this domain is fairly easy. Anyone can do it. The question is how effective can people be in this domain? And that varies. And this sort of one-size-fits-all nuclear era policy deterrence isn't really that clear because deterrence by definition would mean no one attacks you in the first place. But, of course, we're attacked every day in the espionage domain. So what what do we do to deter espionage-based attacks? No one's ever really even talked about that because it's always assumed that that's what will happen, you know, the second oldest profession in the world and that sort of stuff. It's not clear that a lot of the operations in the future will be uh, led by states. Mm-hmm. So what does that mean for uh, spending lots of money in uh, either offensive or defensive cyber warfare? Yeah, and that's the challenge really. To articulate a policy of deterrence that can work against a great power that fears consequences, that needs to protect the civilian population. But how do you deter ISIS when they don't have clear retaliatory targets? You know, they don't really worry about hiding in a bunker because they don't care. So deterrence from that perspective, from the non-state actor perspective, is entirely difficult. So that's why we advocate this policy of defense in depth, going back to what the UK was thinking about when they had their grand empire and thinking about just just preventing attacks where they happen and marshalling forces when things do happen to ensure that we have depth and we have defensive posture to react when we need to because we can't be everywhere at once. So how does the U.S. get better at it? If they're not actively engaged in, you know, real-time operations. The challenge is really we have fallen apart with a lot of 
basic international relations principles, maintaining our alliances, sharing intelligence. Those two things alone have really been degraded in the last few years. So ensuring that NATO and all these other operational entities that we have are able to conduct coordinated efforts, that hasn't really happened. Nor have we been able to really share intelligence because there is some doubt based on our intelligence and other countries' intelligence of who is telling the truth now. And then on top of that, we have a domestic issue. We have a problem with how do we coordinate with domestic um, private entities who will be the main targets, Sony and whatnot. They're not necessarily willing to share information, and we're not necessarily willing to help them. So we have a problem with targets. We have a problem with sharing. We have a problem with alliances, and we haven't done these basic things to shore up our defenses in the first place. Brandon Valeriano is co-author of the new Cato paper, The Myth of Cyber Offense, The Case for Restraint, available now at Cato.org. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast anywhere you get your podcasts, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. <laughs>